I am really glad to be here um, with you this morning, though, as we continue on in our Advent series, like Pastor Tom was talking about, called What's in a Name? We're looking at the four names of Jesus that Isaiah prophesied Jesus would be called in Isaiah chapter 9. So I would love to start today by reading the passage together. So it'll come up on the screen, and then let's read it together. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Amen. In this series, we are talking about each of these four names, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And throughout this series, we're looking at what each of these names tell us about Jesus. We're looking at an example of this name played out in the Gospels. And we're also considering what this name means for us in our own relationship with Jesus today. So, so far, we've talked about Wonderful Counselor. We've talked about Mighty God, the first two. And today, like we mentioned, we're going to be exploring the theme of Everlasting Father. But first, I want to go back to the series title again. What's in a name? Why do we care so much about names? Why do people spend so long thinking and dreaming about what name they're going to name their child? Why do businesses spend hours considering names, doing market research to figure out what to name a store or a product or a company? Why do they do that? Why do we do that? Because giving someone or something, a name, is communicating its value, his or her or its value, but also something about that person or thing. Through Isaiah's prophecy, the Lord wanted to communicate to his people some very, very important things about the coming Messiah. So let's start there. What does the Lord want to communicate to us about Jesus? The coming Messiah by calling him Everlasting Father. So let's, let's take these two names, these two words, one at a time. First, let's look at the word everlasting, which simply means lasting forever. Some synonyms for everlasting are eternal, endless, never-ending, perpetual, undying, abiding, enduring, infinite, boundless, timeless. Those are some pretty deep words. We don't actually have anything in our lives as humans on this earth that is everlasting. We don't last forever. We know that our bodies don't last forever. Some of us feel our bodies um, breaking down a little bit each day. And even amazing structures that are feats of engineering that we can create eventually, eventually will begin to crumble and need repair. We actually don't have a helpful or good um, picture of something everlasting in our lives. But the idea of everlasting is all over the Bible. So let's look at just a few passages that use the word everlasting. They'll be up on your screen. Genesis, the Lord said to Abraham, I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you. 
and for the generations to come, to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. Isaiah 45, but Israel will be saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. You will never be put to shame or disgrace to ages everlasting. Deuteronomy 33, the eternal God is your refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. Psalm 143, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures through all generations. The Lord is trustworthy in all he promises and faithful in all he does. Jeremiah 31, the Lord appeared to us in the past saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with unfailing kindness. These are just a few of the many, many passages in scripture that talk about the everlasting nature of God. Throughout the Old Testament, we learn about an everlasting God. We learn about a God who will never die or end, about a God whose love for us will never end but will last forever, about a God who offers his people, us, a never-ending covenant or promise, a God who will protect us forever, a God who offers us salvation forever, and very importantly, a God whose kingdom will go on forever. By naming him everlasting, the Lord wants us to know that Jesus is forever. His rule in the world will never, never, ever end. In an incredibly and increasingly shifting world, Jesus will always last. He will always be there. He will always love us. He will always keep his covenant with us. He will always protect us. He offers us his children's salvation forever, and his rule and his kingdom will reign forever. We'll come back to this word everlasting, but I want to look at father now. So a father, I don't really have a great definition of a father. It's a father, a parent. Um, it's a very relational term. You can't be a father without having a child. There's a built-in relationship communicated by the word father. Throughout scripture, we see the image of the Father referring to the Lord. We actually don't see extended teaching in scripture about earthly fatherhood or well-developed pictures of a father's relationship to his children. There's some of that in scripture, but not a ton. And then we see some, but we don't even see that many portraits of good fathers, like over their entire lives, uh, good fathers. But there are almost a thousand uses of the explicit vocabulary of father in the Bible, revealing this strong image about father. So I want to just briefly explore um, this father imagery in scripture. It has three um, basic parts. First, the fatherhood image in scripture is an ideal created for good by God himself. So fatherhood is an ideal created for good by God himself. Earthly fathers in the Bible held authority in ancient cultures that is quite actually foreign to most modern ones today. There was also a sense of dignity and worth that biblical cultures attached to a father's role. A good father in the Bible takes responsibility for the spiritual welfare of his children. So again, fatherhood image in scripture is an ideal created for good by God himself. 
And then second, there is a failure in the earthly reality, though, in our fallen world to match that ideal. So there's a failure in our world here that doesn't match the ideal. There's story after story in Scripture of fathers who do not and cannot live up to the ideal of the good father. Adam was the first earthly father. Fathers, I think, probably most want to leave a good legacy for their children. But what legacy did Adam leave? He left his children the legacy of original sin. Not exactly probably what he was hoping for, and I don't mean to say that too lightly, but the legacy that Adam left, the very first father, was original sin. David, as a father, was inattentive as a father, and he failed to protect his daughter Tamar at one point. Abraham, as a father, favored one son over the other, leading to familial strife. And we see later that Isaac and Jacob did the same thing. Saul is another parent, another father in the Bible. He brings fear to his children through his parenting. Many, many other examples of times that fathers failed by the things that they did or didn't do in Scripture. And I imagine that many of us, all of us, have stories of that in our own lives. Times when our own fathers, no matter how wonderful they are or were, failed as well. Now, a few weeks ago at the men's breakfast, I was not there, but I'm told that Scott Larson led a discussion among the men there about fathers and father imagery. When Paul, my husband, told me about what Scott talked to the group about, I thought, that's great stuff, and I wanted to pass it along to you, too, because it's not a secret society or anything they have. But um, Scott used five categories for fathers that most of our earthly fathers should fall into. One, unfortunately, is abusive fathers. Fathers who, earthly fathers who physically, emotionally, or psychologically hurt and harm their children. Another image was absent fathers. um, Fathers who were absent physically, not there a lot. Perhaps they're working a lot um, on the road. They aren't there. Maybe a child only sees the father on weekends or something like that. And some people, perhaps you have never met your earthly father. So absent fathers. So abusive fathers, absent fathers. And then third, this idea of performance-based earthly fathers. So fathers who give praise, show energy and enthusiasm for you when you accomplish a task or get a good grade. Sometimes with that father, affection is based on your performance. Then another category would be passive fathers. Fathers who are there in our lives, but not fully engaged. So they're physically, but not fully engaged emotionally not giving or offering the direction or feedback that their children need or crave. So we've got abusive fathers, absent fathers, performance-based fathers, passive fathers, and also loving fathers. Fathers who are present, who cheer you on, who care for you well, who do their best to love you and be a good dad. So each of us, I believe, has an earthly father or figure in our life that fits into one of these categories. So abusive, absent, performance-based, passive, loving. Just please think to yourself, where would your experience with your earthly father fit in? And, but to say, all of these fathers, 
even loving earthly fathers are not perfect fathers. And here's the key for us as followers of God or seekers after God, no matter where we are in our faith journey. We actually can't put our own image, our own personal image of an earthly father onto God as father. Because this only leads us to seeing God incorrectly. Now, my dad was and is great. He would fit into the loving father category. He has a lot of amazing qualities. He did a great job raising me and cheering me on. But he would agree that he's not perfect. And I think, and I really think he would be, we've talked about this. He knows that this is a word that would describe him, so don't think I'm talking bad about him. But he would agree that he's a little ornery these days as he's making the adjustment into a new age group, stage of life. He can get annoyed and exasperated pretty easy at times. He would totally agree that he's like this. So as great as he is, as great as many of our earthly fathers are, they are not perfect. And I cannot project my loving father image even onto God because it would be easy for me to then to see God as ornery or exasperated if I project my image of my father onto God. Just like those of us who have had abusive or absent or passive fathers or performance-based fathers, can't, we have to try to stop ourselves from looking at God through that lens. Because when we have a warped view of God then, we, we see God as abusive, as absent, as passive, or ornery in my case, which he is not. So again, earthly realities of fatherhood has failed. But the third point, the third part of this father imagery is that God is the perfect father who can alone redeem the failure. The Lord is the only father that is truly good. God is a loving father who has compassion on all his children, we see in Psalm 103. Deuteronomy 32, we see that God created his children. Deuteronomy 1, we see that God carries his children in his arms. Matthew, we see that God provides what what his children need. We also see that God gives his children good gifts. We see that God disciplines his children that he loves. We see that God has a father's love for orphans and little ones. And so many more things like that. God as father lives up to the image of the ideal father. That ideal that was created by God for good. And he's the only one who can. As one who lavishly loves and cares for and provides for us, his children. God is good. He knows what we need, and he has compassion on us. So God is the perfect father who can alone redeem the failure. But here's a question. Why name Jesus Father? When we talk about the Trinity, the triune nature of God, we talk about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So why is the coming Messiah the coming son called Father by Isaiah. Now we know that the Holy Spirit carefully selected these words in Isaiah. This isn't a misprint. It wasn't supposed to be everlasting son. The Lord deliberately wanted Isaiah to prophesy that Jesus would be called 
everlasting Father. But why? So I want to answer this question for us today with the thoughts from a pastor in Illinois. His name is David Sunday. Isn't that a great name for a pastor? Pastor Sunday? So why is Jesus called everlasting Father in this passage from Isaiah? First, just to point out, Jesus, Isaiah is not confusing Jesus the Messiah with the first person of the Trinity. So it's not a misprint. He's not confusing that. Isaiah isn't teaching us that God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, is the same person as God the Father. So the, earth, the early church actually denounced this idea um, as a heresy called modalism. So they saw that as an easy thing to get confused by. They just nixed that right away. And so just for a brief teaching on the Trinity, that God is three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but still one God. I'll put up a graphic that helps explain the Trinity, even though the concept of the Trinity, just to say, is actually beyond our earthly minds to totally comprehend. So this slide shows God is the Father, God is the Son, and God is the Holy Spirit. So you see God in the middle right there with um, an is in three directions, kind of like an equal sign to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. So God is each of those. But at the same time, along the outside of the image, you can see the three places where it says God the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is not the Son. So there it is, the Trinity, perfectly clear, right? Again, it's a hard concept that we may never truly understand this side of heaven. But the key to know for our topic today is, again, that Isaiah is not confusing Jesus, the Messiah of the Gospels, with the first person father of the Trinity. Second, by calling him father, Isaiah is highlighting the divine nature of the Messiah. Jesus is, Isaiah is highlighting the divine nature of Jesus, the Messiah. More than any other author in the Bible, Isaiah loves to speak about eternity. We get back to the everlasting concept here a bit too. Isaiah speaks of God as the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. And here in Isaiah 9, he uses the same type of language to re re refer to the Messiah. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the one who is and was and who is to come, the Almighty. Isaiah is speaking of a child when he says, Everlasting Father, a child who will be born some 700 years in the future. Yet he makes it clear that this child is the author of eternity, the father of time. This truly boggles the mind. One commentary that I read said that with this phrase, everlasting father, the mystery of the Godhead stretches our human understanding almost to the breaking point. This newborn child is not only eternal with an existence that never had a beginning, but he is also addressed as father. As we see, saw earlier, the term father is used to describe God in the Old Testament. By calling Jesus Father, we learn that the one who is to come has been there from the beginning of time. By calling him Father, Isaiah is highlighting the divine nature of the Messiah. 
And then third, with this name, Isaiah is communicating that Jesus the Messiah is the only one who can reveal God's fatherly character to us, for he is one in nature and essence with the Father. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. That's what the Lord was offering to us, himself, by giving us Jesus. Jesus is the perfect, perfect image of God, the exact representation of his being. Jesus alone makes the Father known. Indeed, no one can come to the Father except through him. So let's look at an example of this everlasting Father idea in the New Testament. So I'd love for you to turn with me to page 764 in your pew Bible. There's most of the pew Bibles in in front of you. Or on your phone, or if you have your own Bible, to John 14, verses 6 to 12. So again, turn with me to page 764 in the pew Bible. So in this passage, we're picking picking this up mid-conversation between Jesus and his disciples. This is part of a larger discourse that in the book of John are Jesus' final words for his disciples before his crucifixion and death. So we're kind of joining in a conversation that's going on. So look at verse 6, chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing. And they will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father. So this passage shows us an example of Jesus as the everlasting Father from the Isaiah prophesy. Jesus wants Philip and the rest of the disciples to clearly understand that because they know him, they know Jesus. Because they have seen him, they've seen Jesus. Because they have lived with him, they have lived with Jesus, that they have also done those things with the Father. This is huge. Jesus is showing the disciples, he is claiming to them that he is God. Now the Israelites as a people, they have long longed after God. Psalm 42 says, As the deer pants for water, so my soul pants for you, O God. Philip and the other disciples don't totally realize it yet, but in the person of Jesus, God had and was answering the deepest 
longings of the human heart, the deepest longings of their hearts to know God. It is in Jesus that the Father presents himself to us. To know the Son, to know Jesus, is to know the Father. To see the Son is to see the Father. In this passage, some of Jesus' last words to his disciples, Jesus is meeting the longings of generations of human hearts to know God. And Jesus offers us to that today as well. So let's talk about that. Let's answer our final question together today. What does the name Everlasting Father mean for us and our relationship with Jesus today? First, like we've been talking about, it means that we can know God. We can be in relationship with him. I can be in relationship with the God of the universe. Little old me can be in a relationship with this mighty God that Paul talked about last week. That's crazy. Jesus says, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Gods of other religions are untouchable and aloof, but not so the God of the Bible. Listen to these words from the first chapter of the book of John. John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And skipping ahead to verse 14, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus came and dwelled among us. God came down to earth. Another translation of that last verse says that Jesus came down, the word came down, and moved into the neighborhood. He moved in with us. God was not too aloof. He got into the muck and the mire of this world with us. Jesus being called Everlasting Father means that we can know him. We can know Jesus. Father, like we said, is a very relational word. It's a word that signifies relationship with another person or being. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, prince of peace. They communicate other things about Jesus. But everlasting Father communicates that Jesus is coming, has come, to live among us and to be in relationship with us. He was not an aloof savior, but like a loving father. Jesus called the everlasting father means that he wants to be in a relationship with you and with me. Second, even more than offering relationship, Jesus being called heavenly father communicates that Jesus would lavish on us, his children, fathering care. Not just any relationship, but fathering care. Jesus, by his life, death, and resurrection, welcomes us into his family. 
Verse 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the door by which we have access to God. He lavishes the fatherly love on us, and we are blessed then with all the rights and privileges of being his children. We are no longer separated, no longer lost, alienated, or alone, but we live forever as the sons and daughters of the King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus takes away our guilt and again opens up the way to God's fatherly heart. Everything that you and I have ever dreamed a father could be, everything that you've ever wanted from your relationship with your earthly father. Remember those fatherly frameworks we talked about earlier. Whatever you've ever wanted from that relationship with your earthly father, Jesus is and will be for you. If you have or had an abusive earthly father, know and believe that Jesus wants to be your loving father who heals and nurtures and doesn't harm. He says to you, come to me, my son, my daughter. I will not harm you, but I will heal this world's hurts and bring you into relationship with me. If you have ever had, if you have or had an absent earthly father, know and believe that Jesus is present to you. So present. He is here. He is with you. Jesus says to you, I am here and I am with you. You are my son, my daughter. I will never leave you or abandon you. If you had or have a performance-based earthly father, know and believe that Jesus loves you and takes delight in you no matter what you accomplish or don't accomplish or if you fail or if you succeed. Jesus says to you, I love you and delight in you, my son and my daughter because you are my son and my daughter, not because of what you do, but because of who you are in me. If you have or had a passive father, know and believe that Jesus is attentive to you. He sees you and he wants to guide you. He wants to teach you and direct you and lead you. He says to you, come follow me, my son, my daughter, I will lead you, and I will teach you. I will be attentive to you. And if you had or had a pretty good, pretty awesome, amazing, loving earthly father, know and believe that Jesus is even more, that he is the perfect loving father. He will never, ever fail you. Jesus says to you, I know you've got a pretty awesome understanding of fathers, but come close to me and let me be your perfectly heavenly father. Let me blow you away by how good and how much I love you. To all of us, our Messiah will be forever our perfect, perfect father. He will always be perfectly fatherlike in the way that he shepherds and leads us. In Jesus, you have a perfect father forever. So even more than offering a relationship, Jesus being called Heavenly Father communicates that Jesus lavishes on us his loving care. And then third, Jesus as an everlasting Father means that we can trust him. As members of the Jewish community, the disciples knew from their own religious tradition that God would never abandon them. 
throughout history, throughout scripture, God has responded to the needs of his people and protected them in times of distress. They know that. They've recounted that. The disciples have recounted that. So Jesus is saying here to his disciples in this passage, you do trust in God. Therefore, trust also in me. Earlier in this chapter, Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. Jesus, as everlasting Father, means that we can trust him. And Jesus, as everlasting fathers, as everlasting Father, means that we can be freed from worry and stress and anxiety over many things in this life. Trusting God doesn't change our situations. We know that. But trusting God, trusting Jesus, releases us from the stress and distress about these things. We don't have to be distressed at the world around us or to be overcome by stress and anxiety and fear at the things of our lives that we can't change. John 16, Jesus says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. In a world of brokenness, in a world of disrupted relationships, we have an everlasting Father who cares for us. Jesus as the everlasting Father means that we can trust him and be free from distress. Let me end with a few more words from our pastor friend, Pastor Sunday. He says, how comforting is it to read, his name shall be called Everlasting Father. Once we become a child of Christ, we are his and he is ours forever. Forever. There will be no goodbyes with him. Nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from his love. Not even death itself. Indeed, it will only draw us closer. Praise God for our eternal security in Christ, our everlasting Father. So, the use of the words Heavenly Father for Jesus in this prophecy are entirely, entirely fitting. Jesus, our everlasting Father, came down at Christmas into a broken and sinful world to fill our hearts with heaven's love and to teach us how to love one another. He came to make us his sons and daughters. This is the Father's gift to us this Christmas. Let's pray.